in church. Do you ever wonder, what was God thinking, making human beings? I mean, look at all the atrocities that we do to each other and the devastation that we've brought to our planet. When I was much younger and as I became increasingly aware of the world's political history, of the wars and terrors of our recent past, I actually started to lose my love for the human race. I found it so hard to love politicians and world leaders and the populace who often places such people in power. It was not a good attitude to have and it could have led to a lot of hardness of heart were it not for God's intervention. And often thinking about how degraded humanity has become causes some serious questions to rise within us. How could God make us if he knew the potential that we had for evil? And if God made us with this potential, then isn't he the one who's actually evil? I mean, he's the source, right? How can a good God make people with the capacity for such evil? And if God really is good, then why does he still have us here on this planet, allowing suffering to continue? And why hasn't he just wiped us out yet? Well, these big apologetic questions are important to ask, and I think Genesis 2 begins to answer them. Because it tells us what God was thinking in making us, in making you. What good potential he had, and what good potential he had placed within humankind what his intentions were and still are for humanity and the cosmic temple that he's placed us in. Now, before we look more closely at the text, I just want to quickly allude to a couple of debates that often get stoked when we look at this chapter of Genesis. The first is the debate about whether Adam and Eve were actual, real people in history. And there's a spectrum of opinion about it, from yes, they are real historical figures to know they're simply fictitious characters who represent the first humans. And it's okay to have opinions on that, spe um, on that spectrum. Um, and in my opinion, it doesn't really matter to the meaning of the text. And the other big debate is what Andrew began to highlight last week about the relationship between faith and science. When we look at the biblical account of how God made humans, some people see a real tension between that and the science of the evolution of our species. And again, I'm not going to go into this debate, but I encourage you, if you're interested in, in exploring this further, there's lots of helpful information and resources out there to help us grapple with this issue. So um, ISCAST, um, the Centre for Christians for Science and Technology, is a wonderful resource for us in this area, and there's a website up on the screen. And there's a couple of books, um, Christian books, that are written um, that delve into this topic in a lot, of, in a lot more detail. Okay, so let's have a look at this chapter. So in Genesis 1, we see an all-powerful God, a creator God, speaking the cosmos and everything in it into existence. And then in Genesis 2, it zooms right in to the story of humanity, with God personally forming man from the dust and being face-to-face -face with him to breathe his own breath of life into him. He doesn't speak them into existence from a distant word, like how he did with the sun, moon and stars, but is personally involved in their creation with his own hands and his own breath. So there's something really special and unique about humans. Could it be that humans are the locus of God's purposes for his cosmos? 
And we read Genesis 2 with the background of chapter 1 in mind, particularly where it says in verses 26 to 28. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God made us like him in his own image with, as we see in these verses, the purpose of ruling over over it, ruling with God over his earth, filling it and subduing it. I mean, what a charge, what an incredible mandate. Nothing else in creation had been blessed in such a way and placed in the honoured position to rule over the world, not even the angels. But what exactly does this mean to be the image of God? Well, let's think about how we use this language in our own you know, context. Um, so when Seth was younger, um, everyone said that he was the splitting image of Jerome. So check this out. The photo on the left is Jerome when he was around two, I think. Is that right, Jerome? About two? <laughs> I'm guessing. And then the one on the right is Seth at about the same age. So you can see that they are just so incredibly similar. Um, just like Seth uh, was clearly the image of his dad, so we are the image of God, our father. And we can also think about this in terms of personality and character traits. Like Seth gets his musical interest from me, but his playful cheekiness from Jerome. (laughs) Children image their parents. Or another way to think about it is with a political metaphor. So think about how earthly rulers erect statues of themselves to claim dominion of their empire. This was perhaps the case hundreds or thousands of years ago, and it's definitely not the done thing in Australian culture, but if you travel to other countries, um, it still actually is. So when we travelled around Sri Lanka a few years ago, there were posters of the president everywhere and in every town that you went to. So in the same way, humanity is like God's sovereign emblem. We are made to reflect and represent God's dominion, God's kingdom, and God's presence. When we are seen, we show forth God and God's reign. So what I want to do this morning is to highlight all the things that we see of God in this chapter of Genesis and the implications for our role as image bearers of God. So firstly, what we see is that God is personal and knowable. Notice in verse 4 that it is the Lord God, that is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh being the personal name of God, which he reveals to Moses later on in Exodus. And as I already mentioned, God is face to face with the man as he breathes into him and speaks directly to him. He's a God who relates and who invites humanity into relationship with him the triune God. So for us as image bearers, we know that we too are made for relationship. As people with thoughts and feelings, 
responsive to who and what is around us with the capacity for intimate relationship. And this tells us that humans are more than just a body with a mind, but that we are spiritual beings able to relate to God. God made us through relationship as a Trinitarian God, in relationship in that he created them, plural, and for relationship to be fruitful and multiply. And so we see that the essence of human existence is relationships and the overflow of mutual love relationships in fulfilling God's purposes. Secondly, we see that God is the source, as Andrew mentioned last week, the one from whom all of life flows. So the implication for us as image bearers is firstly that we are dependent creatures whose lives must continually draw from him, but also that we are made to channel God's life and life-giving presence to others and the world around us. We weren't meant to drain and destroy life but to help it flourish. We also see in Genesis 2 that God is the one who provides abundantly and with wisdom, goodness and love towards his creation. His providence is perfect. He provides his creation with people to cultivate it and take care of it, which we see in verse 15. He provides everything necessary for humans to flourish, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in verse 9 and a river to water the garden in verse 10. Notice also the mention of gold, onyx and resin in verse 12 which highlight the rich resources of the earth. But God provides for more than just our physical needs, our survival needs, but he provides for our emotional needs as well. So he provides Adam with Eve, an equal partner, a helper. The Hebrew word for help means to aid and support and is also used in the Old Testament in regards to God being a help and a shield to his people in the face of their enemies. So just as a quick aside, just because I can't resist, woman is not there as a subjugated slave-like helper but as a dignified co-worker who is essential (laughs) for enabling humanity to fulfil God's mandate. Let's get that clear. So God is good and he is wise in that he knows what is fitting for his creation and he is faithfully providential. He gives humanity a dignified vocation, the delight of loving relationships without shame and his very self. The implication for us as images of God is that not only can we trust that God knows what is best and good for us and will supply all our needs, but also that we channel and mediate God's wisdom and goodness and generosity to each other, to our community and to the world. And this links to the next attribute of God as we think about God's righteousness and holiness. Notice that God is the one who determines what is good and what is not good. In chapter 1, we see the repeating refrain, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, God says... It is not good that man should be alone. God alone is the one who determines what is good and what is not good. And in verse 16, God commands, he gives a command, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Without going into too much detail about this command, what we must first realise is that God is the one who's in the position to command. He's the sovereign ruler of the world and the people he's created. Like a king who has authority to command his subjects, God has authority to command humanity. But what we also must understand is that God's authority is absolutely tied to his goodness towards his creation. Because of his righteousness, God is actually morally obligated to his creation and to its fulfilling the purposes that he has determined for it. He is covenanted with it. In other words, God is ethical. He has concern for his cosmos. He has concern for humanity. And he acts to ensure that his good will will be fulfilled and that his glory will endure. And so he sets boundaries for Adam and Eve and for us to ensure that they thrive and therefore to ensure that the world does too. A lot of us might wonder if God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil there just to tempt Adam and Eve. But what if God put the tree there to allow humanity to exercise like him free moral choice and to worship him in loyal devotion to exercise our capacity and our potential for righteousness because as images of God we too are innately moral beings notions of justice and righteousness are implanted within our natures And we're not ignorant, but God gave us insight into the consequences of moral decisions, into what leads to life and what leads to death. So too, our choice of whether or not to worship him through trust and obedience has life and death ramifications. And so we image God by exercising justice and living ethically. We image God in understanding and demonstrating our moral obligation to the world and to our fellow human beings. As it says in Micah 6.8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And what we also see about us as image bearers of God is that, like God, we too are endowed with authority. One of the things I love about this idea is that God's commands of us don't come without empowerment and dignity. He doesn't command us as if we are his slaves. No, his commands come to people who've been invited in to share in his reign. Just as God in Genesis 1, he names what he creates, yeah? So there's a repeated refrain after um, God creates everything. God called the day, day, and the night, night, and the vault, sky, and the dry ground, land, and so on. In Genesis 2, God asks Adam to name the animals. God is giving Adam not just a creative opportunity, but the opportunity to participate in his authority, to do what God did. And as we saw in Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, which we read earlier, Humanity are to fill the earth and rule over it and to work, which means to serve, 
and to steward and cultivate the earth, to multiply into communities and societies where God's goodness and lordship is known and to take the world and humanity forward because we are the connection between creation and God. Mediators called to extend God's reign and God's authority through goodness and love. As images of God, we are co-heirs with him, vice-regents, if you like, in God's project for the world. So God was doing a lot in making us. God was doing a lot. But the other thing we need to think about is that Jesus Christ, the word who was with God in the beginning, the one through whom all things were created, he is described in the New Testament as the perfect image of God. In Colossians 1, it says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And in Hebrews 1 verse 3, we read that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Well, we all know the story of what happens in Genesis 3, which we'll be going into next week. Spoiler alert, (laughs) humanity doesn't fulfill its identity and purpose as images of God. But Jesus is the one who does what we couldn't do, fulfilling our call to bear the image of God in the world. Jesus, as a human being, redeems the image of God among the human race. As Christians, we have received Jesus' righteousness and we have been redeemed to fulfill the creation mandate. Just as we read in Romans 8.17, because of Jesus, we are now children of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have been restored to reign with him again. Because of Christ, we can exercise Christ's authority over the physical and spiritual realm, extending his peace and justice and love until all things are brought under and into Christ. So in the light of Christ, we can see that God's trajectory for humanity right from the start is to its perfection and its fullness in Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Or as Colossians 1.27 puts it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our Christian identity, our lives, are essentially about rediscovering the implications of our restored place as image bearers of God on the earth. So there's a lot here in Genesis 2 that does really lay the foundations for thinking about the big questions that I mentioned at the start, of God's goodness in the face of human evil and in the face of the demise of our planet. Questions of what is this all for and where's it all going? Questions of where the hope for our planet actually lies. Genesis 2 tells us of God's integrity as our creator, of his good design and intent for humanity and for the world that we've been placed in. And it's only in understanding this that we can understand the rest of the story in the Bible to follow. So what is this stirring within you? What is it of the image of God that you can see God bringing forth and raising up in you? Maybe it's your desire to work for justice and to see things being set right in our society. 
Maybe it's your sense of love and care for our planet that you're wanting to develop in practical ways and bring others along with you. Maybe it's about developing how you exercise godly, servant-hearted authority to learn how to lead in righteousness. Or maybe it's about growing in your love for humanity as a whole and not letting the terrible things that we see other human beings doing rob us of having God's heart for his people. And this isn't just an individual thing, but a corporate reality for the people of God, for the church. As his church, we corporately have been redeemed to again bear the image of God to our world. That's what the church is for. So what does this mean for us at St Mark's? How are we shining forth God's love and goodness and justice in our community and in our care of our environment? How are we extending God's generous goodness and peace in the hills? And let's think big for a moment. I mean, wouldn't it be great if churches were leading our nation and our world in waste solutions and renewable energy technologies? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if the church was exemplifying virtuous relationships as a model for world governments? Wouldn't it be great if the church were the means of such significant transformation for people that in our own communities there are none left on the social and economic fringes? These are big questions and big ideas that our church needs to continue to to grapple with. And I'm looking forward to our chance to keep dreaming together. So as I close, I want to finish by reminding us, by reminding you that you are significant to God's cosmic purposes. You are not inconsequential and the church is not inconsequential in our world and God's incredible plans for it. Amen.